Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 183, The Timeless Tradition of Spiritual Apprenticeship. We're joined again by teacher and scholar Hokai Sobel to explore how his consumer-client-colleague model interfaces with the timeless tradition of spiritual apprenticeship. This is part four of a multi-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. As you're describing these, I'm just thinking of going, for instance, to a retreat at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and I can see that even on a retreat, I can see myself in all three of these positions. For instance, just me signing up for the retreat and paying money and seeing the description, I'm definitely a consumer in that moment. (laughs) And then I come to the retreat and I hear Dharma talks, and it feels like in some ways I'm sort of in a consumer moment at times because I'm consuming the material and at other times I'm kind of connecting with the teacher who's presenting it and I feel more like a client. And then from there I go into interviews, one-on-one interviews with teachers and sometimes I have relationships with these teachers. And so it's definitely more of a client position or mindset. And then there are even times during those interviews where it becomes something of a colleague relationship where the teacher, especially if we have a relationship for years that coming in, there's moments of recognizing our mutual interest in this topic and in some cases even knowledge. So I can see, yeah, that I go through these different mindsets, but I can see that they're also not really clear. They really morph in and out of one another. There's definitely no way of distinguishing in a formal sense, at least in the Dharma circles that I'm in. Yeah, it's very difficult because... There are objective and other reasons why it's so difficult to distinguish them. One of them is definitely because we we have been relating to the student-teacher notion and practice now for maybe 40 years, and we still haven't really come up with the description of a viable, sustainable model in any of the great Dharma streams that would be accepted across the different lineages or uh, influential groups or whatever, we haven't come up with a description of model that would include economic, psychological, communication, uh, autonomy and uh, mutuality and authority and verticality and governance, all these and other aspects that have a place in determining this dharmic exchange situation. So, because a model is, is still in the process of being described, being formulated, being settled somehow, there is still a negotiation going on. That's the reason mainly, and it's an objective reason, basically. That's the reason why it's so difficult to distinguish them. But once we figure out how to put these different streams of conditioning and influence that is present as a force field in our exchange, we will find ways to fix them and to make them more precise so that these three are not made rigid somehow, so that you must behave as a customer when you pay for the retreat. But it will be a clear 
financial transaction without a shadow, without anything sticking to it. And then when we are there in an instruction or a coaching context or a dharmic therapy context or whatever, we will have, again, no shadow sticking to it, whether it's appropriate or not. There will be transparency and clarity about these different modes of learning together, learning from someone, learning with that someone, and learning in the context of relationship with someone. So these different degrees of engagement and demand on the student's attention, effort, energy, and even money, you know, will be more clearly defined and someone would much faster learn what it takes to become a committed student and what are the pros and cons of becoming a committed student or a full-time student for a year, three years, five years, or whatever. One wouldn't have to become a Dharma senior with 20 years of experience to find out what it all means. I believe that three or six months you know, of engagement with a group, organization, or teacher should be more than enough to know all you need to know on the outside mm. about different models, dynamics, uh, demands, prerequisites, etc., etc. Of course, some uh, groups, institutions, uh, organizations have gone a long way towards clarifying those questions, but some others have not done sufficient in that direction so that the overall degree of maturity in the Buddhist, in the Western Buddhist scene is rather uh, varying somewhere you cannot find any answers to questions because they haven't been even approached. And somewhere you can even find, you know, Q&As where uh, some of these questions are articulated and answered very precisely while uh, some are still in the process of being answered Hmm. or even defined. I was just wondering that, you know, as we were looking at the client, what client and customer or client and consumer differentiation, that a similar differentiation exists for the colleague model, namely in the case of the colleague and most serious students of Buddhism in the West see themselves as somehow a colleague between themselves and as junior colleagues to their teachers most have this experience at least, even if they wouldn't self-identify like that. And also, a large number of teachers in the West feel very comfortable if they can instruct or teach or lecture by inhabiting, at least partially, a professor mindset. Somehow, this cultural role is a lecturer, is somehow one very easy to slip into and out of. So it has been used quite a lot. We use the word teacher of Buddhism mostly. Very few people use master or very few people will use some other word when they do their best to translate whatever their title is in some of the Eastern languages if they use that as well, you know. So specifically, a colleague as opposed to whether client or customer or consumer, a colleague will shift the basis of the exchange of the relationship in such a way that he or she will recognize 
something you mentioned when you were talking about your experience in a single day of a retreat, they will recognize a mutual basis for a relationship. Namely, this relationship will not be necessarily or predominantly based on something which puts the two parties somehow against each other or face-to-face to each other. The relationship will be based on something that draws their attention together. So we can imagine colleagues standing shoulder by shoulder looking in the same direction. Mm-hmm. They are not standing face-to-face anymore necessarily exchanging something. Yeah. But they are now looking together in the same direction and probably making observations on what they experienced there. Then the student continues learning from the observations of whoever the teacher is by directly observing something and seeing a different observation or a different description of what is being observed together. The student learns about a possibility, you know, of a fresh way of seeing and experiencing things. So the main or the most sharp distinction between a colleague and the client would be that the colleague is actually interested to inhabit the space described by the teacher, not in a personal sense. In this case, I mean in the universal human sense as a basic perspective, which is deemed by the junior colleague as more advanced or more profound or in every case desirable. In spiritual terms, we often speak of more advanced cognition or a deeper understanding somehow. While this wish to inhabit the same space is very present for a colleague and this same space gives a basis for trust and relationship to the junior and senior colleagues and even between junior colleagues and between senior colleagues, it's like their lingua franca, their language of understanding. It's implicit in their relationship that it's all about the space they inhabit together an inner space, namely. While in the case of the client, you know, the client is more than happy to receive some of the benefits from the person inhabiting a certain space of knowledge and skill, but not necessarily moving into that space, uh, at least not for the moment, right? Not in the present. Yeah. Maybe sometime in the future. Yeah. And the consumer, if we go even further on the scale or to whichever direction, the consumer will not even be interested in, in that space. You know, the consumer will be more interested how is that space expressed in this space. If the teacher simply describes the space they're in and the teacher is really someone with an authentic realization, most probably they will not even get the interest or attention of someone who is in the consumer mode. Because someone in a consumer mode is already... Uh, largely identified with the present space they inhabit. And they are simply looking how to refurbish it, you know, or how how to equip it better to make it more functional. Well, sometimes even it's not a sin to make it more entertaining. Why not? Mm -hmm. Many people uh, have visited the first Dharma discourse out of curiosity, you know. Maybe they had uh, an evening off. They had nothing else to do. But this doesn't mean that it cannot be a beginning of a lifelong and meaningful relationship with the Dharma. So I hope the distinction is a little bit sharper now. Yeah, definitely. It feels like you're getting into 
starting to describe how this sort of ancient idea of apprenticeship, which you explained happens in the West, you know, where there's a Western model for that that's thousands of years old, and it also happens in the East. Yes. And it seems like there's something really deep and profound about that, and it seems like what you're describing of sort of flowing upward through these mindsets, that something that kind of happens naturally with a commitment, that that contains in it some of that apprenticeship model. But I'm wondering how else we can make sure that we don't uh, throw out the, the sort of deep wisdom that comes from that sort of personal interaction of the apprentice model. Is it possible to have an apprenticeship with this consumer client colleague model as well? Well, the attempt at the apprenticeship has run into some serious difficulties in the Western spiritual scene at large. And these difficulties were not generated by the influences of client mindset or consumer mindset necessarily. These difficulties arose from two main uh, cultural influences. One of them was a rigid attempt to reconstruct or simply copy certain traditional manners and certain traditional power structures and authority models Mm -hmm. that have well, frankly, have ceased working largely, even in the cultures they stem from. Would this be something like the Tibetan Rinpoche model well, or things like that? That's, that's one example. That's just one example. You know, we have example from every Eastern country imaginable, and for every, every stream of Dharma there is, not just in the Buddhist tradition, of course, but we have a similar models slowly dying off, even in the Western traditions. You have a very strong model in the Catholic Church, at least in the contemplative orders. There is a strong model in the Orthodox Christianity, very strong. For example, in Greece, where there are several centers of ordained, male, mainly male practice. And it's not just that these models of apprenticeship and guidance deserve less and less public recognition. It's not just that they provoke less and less respect or awe, you know, in the eye of the public culture that has largely become ignorant or disdainful of them even. But it's also a problem that the reasons with which and the motivations with which uh, these days people expect to receive the Dharma have significantly shifted, not in a wrong direction or in a good direction. They have changed considerably, and the spiritual traditions have been very, very, very slow and reluctant in reacting to that and in developing new ways of engaging prospective students, irrespective of their degree of commitment. So that one of the results of such shift, and this shift has been going on since the advent of modernity, but it has become very radical after the Second World War. One of these uh, results is a series of difficulties that we like to call scandals. It's a series of scandals that I hope we won't go into now. (laughs) (laughs) These scandals are all over the cultural scene, you know. It's the Catholic Church with their litigations and their abuse cases in the court, which now number, I I believe it's thousands. It's the Buddhist scene, because it's mainly male uh, 
heterosexual teachers, so it's mainly sexual impropriety and abuse of financial resources. And then in the Hindu yoga scene, you know, Hatha yoga, etc., and other types of yoga, there has also been a series of situations, publicized or not. And then especially in the scene of independent teachers, when I say especially, I don't mean that they are even worse. I just mean that it's been very well publicized. Yeah. Many, many cases, you know, of abuse often concerning governance, money, and sex all at once, not just by the leading figure, but it was rather widespread by those who were more influential in the structures of these organizations. So, these are just one set of problems. Another set of problems, it's an obvious decline in the generational dynamics if you look at the statistics of membership of Western Buddhist organizations the wave of the majority of membership moved from 20-somethings to 30-somethings to 40-somethings to 50-somethings, and now it's moving into 60-somethings. Mm-hmm. It began in the late 60s and early 70s with very young people being very eager to find out about these things. But then, as the time went on, this same group remained the majority of membership in most established and permanent organizations. So that this is another problem, and most people don't see it as a scandal, but I see it as a huge problem. I I don't say others are oblivious to it. I I just uh, believe it deserves much more attention than several rogue teachers. But of course, you know, it's much easier to talk about improper uh, behavior, which is rather simple to take care of if we're willing, than to talk about this structural problem, which is not so simple to tackle namely the generational problem. And when we're speaking about preserving or reinvigorating the ancient and timeless ideal of apprenticeship, let me make clear first that when I at least speak of apprenticeship, I don't mean necessarily an apprentice to someone. Of course, an apprentice usually and typically in uh, over 90% of cases, will have a teacher or several teachers. But apprenticeship, first and foremost, has a value in itself. Namely, we are lifelong apprentices. Even in the path models which describe an ending point, there is a sense that one continues being an apprentice. When the Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, was awakened, one of the stories that describes his awakening relates that After looking around, he thought, who is the one that I'm going to pay my respect to now? Who is the one higher or deserving my respect, deserving my devotion? And then he realized it's the Dharma. For him, of course, an awakened one, that was the nature of reality itself. So, in a way, one remains a devotee. One remains an apprentice in that sense forever. It's a vulnerable, sincere sensitive and open position towards everything that arises. That's the source of apprenticeship. We could say that discovery and curiosity about everything that never ends would be a source of apprenticeship. So we must recognize this source not to identify apprenticeship necessarily with being in a student-teacher relationship with anyone. 
we can recognize that this source of apprenticeship, this sort of essential apprenticeship ideal invigorates such a relationship but only if both the student and the teacher recognize the importance of apprenticeship. Because in a sense, especially in some later, historically later Buddhist models, the student may have his eyes on the teacher. Nonetheless, it's the teacher who serves the wisdom that is yet to be born in the student. The student is the locus where something is about to happen. So that somehow the student need not be too self-aware in that process because he or she is already, you know, the place of the action. So that there's a natural inclination to look elsewhere, as it were. This is just a description of some sources of apprenticeship, but the cultural models that grew around this ideal and this source energy of human curiosity, openness, rawness, vulnerability, and devotion conviction, and all these other qualities that together make the apprenticeship ideal and practice, the cultural models that grew around these were more or less appropriate responses or solutions for the time and space where they so evolved. If we look at the early Indian tradition, and then later we look at the early Tibetan tradition and the later Tibetan tradition, and if we go around Asia, you know, if we just confine ourselves to Asia, for example, to stay in the history of Buddhism, we can see numerous different types of apprenticeship. We can see specifically the guru model developing specifically in Tibetan situation in a way that didn't really catch anywhere else in that precise way. And then... Within each of those cultural models, there were significant differences in precepts, customs, specific ways of doing stuff. If we look at the financial dynamics, if we look at the social dynamics and the way these relationships were initiated, sustained and ended in different epochs, in different uh, times, we will see substantial differences even if we stay in the same place like Tibet or China or Japan. And if we move through time and space, we will see that there have already, in the history of Buddhism, been many, many different ways of practicing apprenticeship and path-walking in real-life conditions. And these different ways encourage us to be confident, first of all, that we can establish a new model here, and also encourage us to be creative as long as we are informed by what has worked and what hasn't worked in the past. So it's kind of meaningless being creative if you know nothing of what has been achieved already because you are going to have to invent the wheel and hot water and fire, you know, and all these things. Take a while. Yeah, it could take a while, another billion years, you know, to come up with something like uh, the first word, you know, like, <laughs> oh, yes. So, basically, what we're dealing with here is not how to save something that is time-honored, but how to allow it to do two things at once. 
namely apprenticeship as a lived subjective experience is well known intimately to every seriously committed student of any spiritual and I would even say any human tradition, even philosophical traditions or psychological traditions at their best, at their more serious, provide very rich situation and context to experience authentic apprenticeship. I would even say that some arts, even some physical disciplines, provide pathways to experience at least some aspects of deep, authentic apprenticeship. So that we have to ask ourselves two questions. One is, how does apprenticeship healthily and functionally and appropriately express itself through existing cultural forms? And that is behind this discussion, you know, of consumer, client, and colleague. Yes. These are existing, resilient cultural forms. We seem unable to escape them completely. And it seems that it's a waste of time trying to do so. And embracing them mindlessly could only, you know, worsen the situation. Because most times we do embrace them mindlessly and unwittingly. So the first question is, how does this ever-fresh ideal, I wouldn't call it even ancient or old ideal, I would call it ever-fresh ideal of apprenticeship, how does it express through existing cultural forms? And second is, while it's expressed through these forms, how do we move beyond these forms to discover the new face of this apprenticeship at this time and this place where we find ourselves, namely the early 21st century Western culture. If we put these two questions, I believe uh, we are already beginning to see the way of moving forward from the present situation wherein we're still in a pretty mixed up situation here because at least from what I'm seeing in the Buddhist media available publicly and from my conversation with students and teachers from different traditions, when we are asked about this problem, especially when we are asked by the practitioners from some other tradition, we tend to go back to the reserve position, namely to the historical definition of apprenticeship or being a teacher. And these historical positions or ideals are only, you know, reminders of how some basic principles were formulated in the time past. There are not instructions really how to do this today in these present conditions. For example, if you ask, if you're not a Zeni, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you ask someone in the Zen tradition, what is a Zen master? They will give you most often a formulaic answer to that, referring to no one specifically or referring to some person constraining that person into a description that doesn't really fit anyone these days. Mm. They will often find recourse to a description that doesn't really fit real-life examples of authentic Zen teachers and Zen masters that are successful in transmitting the teachings these days. And the same goes for, for Tibetan masters or Rinpoches, whether uh, Western teachers or Eastern Rinpoches. And I believe the same goes in Theravada or more generally Vipassana tradition, which perhaps has more than the other two traditions mentioned, developed a, a new way of describing a teacher 
whereby it has borrowed both from the therapeutic tradition in the West and from some other models available, namely through cross-pollination between the different Buddhist streams of practice. If we don't move beyond the present unclear definition of these relationships and open up this discourse in a more dynamic way, then it's very possible that a very small percentage of Buddhist practice will uh, make itself really accommodate and integrate the Western situation. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.